I want to talk a little bit about what makes Westminster's approach to apologetics distinctive and unique, especially in relationship to evangelical or Roman Catholic approaches to apologetics. And where I think we're distinctive rests in the fact that we begin self-consciously with the recognition that every thought must be taken captive to Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul, for instance, in Colossians 2.8 reminds us that there are basically two approaches to philosophy, two approaches to looking at matters philosophically. There's an approach that begins that is based on elementary principles of this world and human tradition on the one hand, and then there's the approach that relies on Christ and his word. Westminster Theological Seminary seeks in its apologetic to begin its apologetic by submitting to the Christ of Scripture. And the Christ of Scripture, as Paul presents him in Colossians chapters 1 and 2, is a Christ who is not only Lord as resurrected from the dead, but he is the eternal image of the invisible God, the firstborn from among the dead, uh, the, the, the firstborn over all creation, and the one who has made all things, visible and invisible. He is the one who is therefore properly the center, properly supreme. And in his resurrection, of course, he is preeminent in all things. Westminster's apologetic seeks to recognize his unique authority and the centrality of his person, work, and word, and begin its apologetic in submission to Christ as Lord. That makes Westminster's apologetic quite different from what you'll find in a broader evangelical context. If you look at the apologetical writings of, of evidentialists, and the list is a long one, they will begin, in essence, with autonomous philosophical arguments that serve as a preamble to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And the problem with that is they present evidence in a manner that is neutral, in a manner that is not properly subjected to Jesus Christ from the very outset of the presentation. And when you look at what the Apostle Paul did, for instance, you can see that that procedure is fatally flawed. When Paul reasons with Stoic and Epicurean unbelieving philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17, what does he say to them? He says to them that God has provided proof that he will judge the world in righteousness by doing what? By raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, the evidence of the resurrection functions in a framework of a covenant lawsuit that God is bringing against unbelievers for their rejection of God's revelation. The resurrection, in other words, is not artificially abstracted from redemptive history. It is not presented as an isolated brute fact for intellectual reflection and investigation. It is itself evidence of God's judgment against sin, that God has appointed the one raised to be judge of the world. And that notion of the resurrection presupposes the entire framework of redemptive history. And think of the options that were available in Paul's day for understanding the resurrection as evidence. What would an Epicurean philosopher say the resurrection of the Son of God proved? Well, according to the Epicureans, 
atoms fall randomly through space, and what accounts for change is when the atoms swerve in the air. That's what accounts for change. And according to um, an Epicurean philosopher, the resurrection of Jesus Christ would prove what? that there was a swerve in the falling of atoms on that day. It would be the Epicurean swerve. In other words, the resurrection would be nothing more than a random, inexplicable fluke that belongs in Ripley's Believe It or Not. But for Paul, the resurrection is the vindication that Jesus Christ is judge, and from that reality, Paul draws the imperative for all men everywhere to repent before the supreme authority of the resurrected judge of the world. Now that is a presentation of the evidence of the resurrection that presupposes the authority of Jesus Christ, that presupposes the authority of God's revelation in Scripture. It's a presentation of evidence, in other words, that is submitted from the very outset to the Christ of Scripture. And Westminster's apologetic begins and ends with Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not seeking to build a cumulative case autonomously considered toward the highly probable reality that Jesus is Lord. Westminster's apologetic following Paul recognizes that Jesus is Lord from the very outset of the argument and from the very beginning of the presentation of the evidence. And in that way then, we call people to recognize that if you do not submit to the Christ of Scripture, if your philosophy at its most basic level is not governed by Christ, your alternative, according to Paul in Colossians 2.8, is empty deception. Futility of thinking that has been and will be judged by God himself in Christ. And so Westminster's apologetic is Christ-centered from its very beginning to its end from the alpha point to the omega point of reasoning, we recognize Christ crucified and Christ raised. And so let, let it be said that apologetics is not a neutral, philosophical prolegomena to the gospel of Christ. Apologetics begins by confessing Christ, and we want to present the gospel of Christ in a way that honors Christ from the very beginning. That makes Westminster very unique. In Westminster's apologetic, you see the integration of biblical theology, systematic theology, and apologetics woven in to a wondrous and beautiful whole. Our apologetic begins where Paul and Jesus and Moses tell us to begin with God's self-revelation that reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. And our hope and prayer is that our students who graduate from this institution will be able to defend the Christ of Scripture in terms of the Christ of Scripture in a way that glorifies and honors his name and recognizes his supreme authority in the discipline of apologetics.